Friends, our first reading today is from the book of Psalms, and it is the very first psalm, in fact, and it can be found on page 843 of your Pew Bible. Friends, let us listen for a word from God. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chafe, that wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today we continue our end of summer sermon series that we're calling Back to School. If you've been in church with us the past few weeks, you'll remember that the idea behind this series is that this is the time of year each year when many of our young people are returning to school. And oftentimes when they go back, one of the first things that they need is a little refresher on some of those lessons that may have lapsed over the summer months. The same of true, is true, rather, of course, for each of us. We each need a refresher from time to time on our own faith journeys about those faces and those stories that form the very foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. We began this series two Sundays ago with the story of the Exodus. Last week, we sat with the prophets through the lens of the prophet Micah. This week, we turn to the story of what is perhaps one of the best-known individuals outside of Jesus himself in all the Bible, the story of King David. We pick up David's story, appropriately enough, right at the start, where David is first anointed as king. So let us continue listening now for a word from God as we hear these verses from 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning with the first verse. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say that I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town, they trembled when they met him. And they asked, Do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called his next son Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. And so he turned and asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for the youngest son and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me once more in prayer? Let us pray. Oh God, send your Spirit now that it would run over us oil that anointed a king long ago. Indeed, O God, we pray that your spirit would be a bridge from this ancient story to the living of these days, that through its work, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here in your sight, O God, would be glorifying and pleasing to you. You and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So things have been going rather rough for God's people. The initial exaltation of the Exodus just two Sundays ago quickly gave way to, what, 40 years of mostly despairing in the desert. And then when Joshua, that great commander of the Israelites, the one who literally led them out of the wilderness and into the promised land, when Joshua dies, there is this next sustained period of suffering for the Israelite people as they establish and set up one judge after another to rule over them, and one judge after another turns from God and worships another. Things have been going rough for God's people by the time we get to this story in 1 Samuel. The story of 1 Samuel, of course, is the one where the Israelites have a new bright idea that they will establish a monarchy, anoint a king, much like the kings that rule the countries that surround them. And so we meet here in this story the prophet Samuel as he is on his way to anoint a new king, the one who will replace the first, Saul character who again had such high hopes at first and yet turned from God like all the ones before him. Here is Samuel walking down a dusty path 
on a mission from God. He's been sent to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, a man who has a home that is full of boys. He arrives and explains what he is there for, and Jesse begins parading them out one after another. First, there's Eliab. He's the oldest, the most handsome, a rugged-looking figure, a king-looking figure, if ever there was one. But Samuel says, no, no, this is not what God is looking for. And so out comes the next, Abinadad. He's smart, straight A's, a smooth operator. Surely this is who God will anoint. But again, God says, no, no, this is not who I'm looking for. And then there's Shema, probably the snobbiest of the bunch, always thinking to himself that I don't belong in a backwater like Bethlehem. But again, no, God says, this is not who I am looking for. Four more sons come out, seven total. And over and over, no, God says, this is not who I am looking for. In the Bible, there are these moments where in retrospect, we can look back and see that the entire rest of the story seems to hang on that moment. One of those moments is right here in this reading today, and it comes in the form of a question. All seven of the sons have now been paraded before Samuel, and still there is no new king. And Samuel turns and asks Jesse, are all your sons here? Our combined Sunday school class has been studying a book this summer by the late Eugene Peterson, That's called Leap Over a Wall. It's all about the life and times of King David. Peterson points out in his book that David's story is the most extensively narrated single story in the entire Bible. There are more details about the life of David than there are about Paul or any of the disciples, or even Jesus himself, which makes it all the more interesting that the first appearance of David in the biblical narrative is as an unnamed little brother. Jesse, are all your sons here? Well, well, they're still the youngest, the baby brother, but he's out tending the sheep. Peterson points out in his book that the Hebrew word here for baby brother, it's this word that carries with it heavy connotation of insignificance, of dismissiveness. The word for baby brother here almost would be more accurately translated, well, the runt of the family is still out in the field. Little brother, certainly not someone qualified for any kind of prestigious work, much less the work of being a king. How interesting, though, that it's in the little brother, it's in the runt of the family that God finally sees what God is looking for. God sees something here that no one else in this story has yet seen. Not Jesse, not the brothers, not Samuel. Only God sees in David what God is looking for. There's this great line that Peterson, who is such a master with words, has in his book. He says, you know, David, 
David is the basic biblical rebuke to the minimizing adjective just. I can't tell you how many times each week I hear someone use the word just. They begin sentences like, well, I just, I don't know the Bible like you. Well, I just, I I don't think I have the gifts for that exactly. Well, I've just never, I don't know, been all that great standing up in front of people. Well, I'm just too, too old. I'm too young. Well, we're just a small church. Well, we've just never really done it that way before. Where Jesse and sons and his sons, rather, and Samuel see just a baby brother, God sees something else. And it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder what God sees in all of us that we may struggle to see in ourselves. I have this friend who many years ago graduated from graduate school got married, and then she and her new husband were trying to figure out what exactly God was calling them to do next in their lives. She was a brand new Christian at the time, had never really stepped foot in church, had never known Christ in a meaningful way in her life. And her husband, too, who had grown up in the church but had been away for a long time, had only recently returned to the faith. And so the two of them decided, this young couple, that what they would do is pray, They'd pray for God's guidance about what God was calling them to next in their life. She wasn't sure, maybe a PhD program, but she wasn't terribly interested in teaching. Maybe her husband was called to start a new business, but that's awfully risky. And so they prayed, and go figure, God answered her prayer. It just wasn't the answer that she was expecting exactly, because what God was calling her to was ministry. For six years, she says, for six years, I pushed back. Every time God made clear to her that ministry is where God was calling her, she would politely reply saying, God, listen, people like me, they don't go into ministry. Right? God, listen, people who didn't grow up going to church, they don't become pastors. God, right, um, people who have parents who have drug and alcohol problems, right, they, they can't possibly qualify to be ministers. God, listen, I mean, I drank in high school. I had sex before I was married, and frankly, I didn't much regret it. You can't possibly mean that you're gonna call me to be a pastor, I mean, come on, God. Where I grew up, if I had walked through the doors of a church, you certainly would not see someone like me, a woman, in the pulpit. Women just, they can't be in ministry. For six years, it went on like this. And for six years, God kept hammering home what God saw in her. Until one day, she finally saw the same thing in herself. You see, I think, I think the story of David is so important for us to go back to school on. 
Because it is this story that reminds each of us that God sees in every one of us here something that we may struggle to see in ourselves. Well, God, I'm, I'm just a teacher. No. No, you're a crafter of minds. You're a shaper of souls. Well, God, I'm just a waitress. I'm just a line cook. I'm just a chef. No, you are someone who is invited every day to embody what Christian hospitality looks like. You are the one who is uniquely positioned to put in front of someone on what may be the worst or best day of their life, a hot cup soup. Well, God, I'm just a lawyer. I'm just an accountant. I'm just a businesswoman. On and on. No, you are one who is uniquely gifted and called to do kingdom work, building up the love of Christ and the place where you have been placed. My personal favorite, well, God, I'm just, I'm just a lay person. I'm just a warm body in the pews. Peterson shares this story in his book about how he was once invited to a dinner party where the host asked everyone who was there that night to go around the table and to share about a person who made a difference in their life. Someone who, with their words and actions, shaped their life in a spiritually formative way. And they went around and did this exercise. And it was only later that Peterson realized, thinking back on it, that not a single person mentioned a pastor or a religious professional. Every story that was shared was the story of a Sunday school teacher, of a youth advisor, someone who sat next to or in the vicinity of their family in church every Sunday for years. I think of the story of a man who I knew for most of my life simply as Mr. Ed. His name is really Ed Gray, but... Ed was not a Sunday school teacher, not a youth advisor for me. He was just a face in the pews that happened to sit near where my family normally sat every Sunday morning. And Mr. Ed was always curious about what was happening in my life. Alan, can I take you out to lunch? Alan, I'd love to know what that new job is teaching you. Right? He didn't teach me anything about the Bible, but he embodied for me some truth. God's love is one that is part of a community far bigger than my own family. I'm just a lay person. No. No, you are a minister of God's love. Now, there's a warning in here too, isn't there? Because if it's true that God sees in each and every one of us things that we may struggle to see in ourselves, then that means we need to be careful about how we see other people too. If we too easily look on another's face and see them only as our enemy, or see them only as someone who is insignificant, someone who we can easily pass over and not have to bother with, then we would do well to remember that the God who we serve and worship in this place is a God who once answered a shepherd boy who said, well, listen, I'm just the little brother, by saying no. No, you are a king. It's hard to know where to even really begin when you're trying to preach a single sermon that 
captures the whole life of this larger-than-life figure known as David. There's so much that follows this introduction here in 1 Samuel. There's Goliath and the Philistines. There's the tabernacle. There's David singing and dancing and writing poems and hymns. David has many of the psalms attributed to his name, of course. Now, he was, too, a deeply flawed person, one who would go on to make grave mistakes. But both then and now, David is revered as being a good king. But I don't think we can really understand any of that if we don't first understand the story of David's call. It's fascinating if you go back and read those verses, you will notice that it is only after David is anointed by Samuel that we ever learn his name. David's name shows up, Peterson says, over 600 times in the Bible. 600 times. And the very first time is verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16. It is David's name, not his role, not his position and the pecking order of the family. It is his name that is both the final and the first word. In his story. And so it is for us. None of us are just anything or anyone. We are each and every one of us first and finally the name that God sees written on our hearts. Beloved. Now it can be hard to see that for ourselves. But the good news is this, whether it takes seven brothers, or six years, or 60 years, God will keep hammering away at what God sees in you and what God sees in us until we can see it too. Thanks be to God, beloved for good news as great as that. Amen.